Well, good evening. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Welcome to the Littleton Theatre of the National. Um, I'm standing on the stage of uh, the Littleton and on the set of standing. Did I say I'm standing? Yeah, I'm sitting, sitting actually. <laughs> I'm sitting on the, uh, the, yeah. the set of Children of the Sun by Maxim Gorky. And uh, with me to talk about Gorky's, uh, that, that, that play in Gorky's life, the development of his theatre, is uh, Professor Cynthia Marsh from the University of Nottingham. Um, uh, who is also the author of Maxim Gorky, Russian Dramatist, which is the definitive work, I would oh. say, on <laughs> Gorky in English. In English, anyway, I don't speak Russian. There are about so. 500 in Russian. So. I imagine. Okay, well, it's probably up there. Um, so, look, what we're going to do is uh, probably we'll talk for about half an hour, I think, about the various aspects of, of the, the play in Gorky's life. We've called this um, session Maxim Gorky, Bitter Realist. And, of course, the word... Bitter has a very, very particular meaning in relation to Gorky. Do you want to say something about that? Yes, I would. Um, I actually added a question mark to it when it was proposed to me. So I would raise a big question mark over the word bitter. And I think I would raise it for these reasons. Gorky chose the uh, pseudonym at the end of the 80s when he was about to publish one of his first uh, short stories. The word Gorky is related to a Russian word, Goria which means bitter or bitterness, yes, but it has a very specific Russian connotation. And that's to do with pain and suffering, and it's an emotional sense which underlies that word. The English bitter, which is, has a sort of sardonic, almost distanciating effect about it, the person is removed from the, the object that they're bitter about, really doesn't catch that word Gorky, which has that emotional colouring that I just described to you. So uh, I would raise a huge question mark over that uh, translation uh, of that particular word, and I think it has prejudiced some of our understanding of Gorky. And I'm really looking forward to uh, perhaps exposing Gorky a bit more to you this evening. Great. Okay. And so, so what you're saying is that that, that that sort of overtone or undertone of, of cynicism uh, is something that is not caught in, in, in Gorky in Russian. There is a political right. sense in which Gorky is uh, commenting on his own society. I don't think he was ever cynical about Russia per se. Right. He felt for Russia, he loved Russia, he was uh, completely and utterly Russian in himself. He spent so much time in exile, um, he was in America, he spent a lot of time in Italy, two big periods of his life he was in exile, can you imagine it, on Capri and in uh, Sorrento, subsequently, spending quite a lot of time um, in Naples. And he never learnt a foreign language. He conducted all his negotiations with anybody who visited him. You had to speak Russian, um, and he obviously employed translators for his work. So his focus throughout his life was entirely on Russia. I mean, you mentioned his politics, and of course, and I'm going to say much more about that yeah. later, and, and we've got things to discuss there. Uh, but in fact, uh, the particular circumstances in which he wrote this play, Children of the Sun, um, they're very distinct, and they're very much related to his political activities. Um, do you want to just first of all describe how, where he was when he wrote this play, yes. and then just say something about the, perhaps the place of this play in the development of his political ideas? Yes, certainly. Um, this, is, this play is written in February uh, 1905. Now, Gorky was a radical and political activist. 
and he had been engaged in uh, a, a huge public demonstration uh, in uh, Petersburg, which was marching against the Tsar and demanding much fairer conditions for the workers, some form of democracy in Russia. As a result, as you might expect, there was, in fact, there was a Sunday in January of that year where there was a lot of bloodshed. The uh, troops, on the orders of the Tsar, it was thought, fired at the demonstration. People were, some people were killed and other people were um, killed in the panic that, that, in, that then ensued. Gorky was a man who was under surveillance anyway because his uh, politics was rather worrying to the regime. And uh, he was arrested and put in the Peter and Paul Fortress in Petersburg while um, decisions were taken about what kind of action was going to be taken against him. He was given, like any prisoner, I mean, he's a very famous man by this time. A very, he was a writer of short stories, he was a famous dramatist, and he's well known for his um, sympathies towards uh, the Bolsheviks um, and Lenin in particular. And so he was given in, or he asked while he was in prison for pen and paper, and he decided to write. I mean, Gorky never ceased writing all his life. When I sit playing on my computer now and I can edit and review and do all sorts of things very quickly, Gorky is handwriting. So he wrote Children for Sun in prison in February um, 1905. Um, there... There are certain contexts to Gorky's work which are repetitive. All his plays were written when he was under a degree of police surveillance. He'd been under surveillance since the early 90s. Uh, so the, the plays up to and including Children of the Sun um, are written under those circumstances. It's a bit more extreme with him being in prison, though he was quite well treated in prison as, as far as I can ascertain. Um, the plays then, he wrote... Enemies, which is a, a really transitional, pivotal play, where he went off to America. And then the plays of the subsequent period are all written um, in exile in Italy. So he's always in some form of restraint or constraint or incarceration when he's writing about Russia and writing his plays. A second question you asked me was about where Children of the Sun stands in his political um, understanding and political development. Gorky is best known in, internationally for his, first, his second play, um, The Lower Depths, which was set in a doss house in a major town and told a story, really did tell a story, about derelicts, drunkards, drug addicts, whores, pimps, uh, the homeless. Um, and in, through that, he was making a very outspoken statement about um, the uh, disinterest of the wealthy classes in Russia towards the people and towards the poor. Um, so that and his first play, which was about the trading classes in Russia, cemented his reputation as an adversarial dramatist. He, he had both those plays produced on the very middle-class intellectual stage of the Moscow Art Theatre, and uh, his, it was a success, success de scandal. They had to bring the police in when there was a play on by Gorky, so controversial was he. The three plays that come after that, of which Children of the Sun is one, he turns his attention for the first time towards what is called in Russia the intelligentsia. 
The intelligentsia dates from the 18th century. It's the educated strata of society. And in the 200 years since its first inception, it had, it had changed somewhat um, considerably. Um, in, the intelligentsia in Russia was forged as a social group dedicated towards opposition to the powers that be. So that's why the word intelligentsia has a very specific meaning in the Russian um, context. So, but by the time that Gorky wants the intelligentsia to adopt an oppositional and challenging po uh, position on behalf of the people of Russia, they've become effete. They've become um, dedicated to, to, their, to themselves, to their own self-satisfaction. And by the turn of the century, around 1900, um, the intelligentsia that Gorky most dislikes are the semi-professionals. I hope there are none of you in the audience. I bet there are, actually. Um, <laughs> uh, teachers, lawyers, um, professors. <laughs> um, and uh, he thinks that they should be doing far more to bring about change in Russia. So the three plays that follow The Lower Depths are Summer Folk, which was written in direct response to Chekhov, and I hope we might have a conversation about that. Then came Children of the Sun, and then subsequently a play called Barbarians. And Barbet, the intelligentsia, that particularly semi-professional uh, intelligentsia, please forgive me, were the barbarians. Um, so Children of the Sun sits in the middle of those three so-called intelli intelligentsia plays. And um, I think you have to begin to understand that probably some of the variations among the people in the intelligentsia that Gorky knew about and wrote about are largely academic for us now. It's extremely difficult for us, I think, unless you're a historian or a political scientist, for example, to distinguish between a Bolshevik and a Menshevik and a middle-class in intellectual and his, his or her political views. So Children of the Sun is really Gorky's opportunity to take a critical view of what the intelligentsia was not achieving and he thought could achieve because they had you know, pretty demanding strengths and were able to rise um, up to um, challenges. So it's there that you need to, to place that particular play. Uh, would, it, would it be true to say, because you, you mentioned that he, he certainly became a Bolshevik, um, would it be true to say that after this group of plays, when we get to enemies and the plays that start to emerge after that, that his political sympathies are, are rather more clearly expressed on the stage? Mm. Whereas I think in these plays, well, you're, you're the expert, my sense of these plays is that... that his ideas are expressed rather more through irony and those sorts of things. Also ambivalence. Yes. <laughs> Gorky is such an interesting man. He, he had very little education. If, if you've never read any Gorky, do read his autobiography. It is stunning. Uh, it was published just on the eve of the First World War. It was obviously a, um, a publicistic attempt to create a persona for himself. But nevertheless, it does tell you where he comes from and what his background was. So he had very little schooling, maybe three, three years if he was lucky and he didn't always attend regularly then anyway. And um, he was self-educated. He um, went out into the world, as he put it in his second volume, and had was sent out to work by his grandfather. He was an orphan, and I think that is a very important fact about him. So he's self-educated, he reads a great deal. 
he discusses, he listens, he talks. Um, and within him grew a desire to become part of the educated class. So when he's writing about the intelligentsia, it is something that he himself in his early years, and I think still in Children of the Sun, aspires to. So he's being very critical of something which, or of a class or a group that he really wanted to be um, a member of. So when you bring enemies into the picture, Gorky's gone into exile. He's been advised to go into exile by the Bolshevik party because the police pressure on him was getting extremely close and extremely hot. And um, the whole play becomes intensely um, adversarial. The two groups within the play are at loggerheads, and it's the same intellectual bourgeoisie, although they're much more capitalist in um, uh, enemies, but there they're ranged against the working class. You, you see something of the working class in um, Children of the Sun, but it's a very perhaps constrained special form um, I, I would like to talk about that too in a moment. But it, it, by enemies, we're in the middle of a strike, and it's adversarial between the factories, factory owners and the, um, the workers in, in the factory itself. So that sets up a whole new set of oppositions um, and challenges. Um, that's where I was thinking of, in that play, you do have a distinction drawn between the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks. By this time, Gorky is really much more moving closer to Lenin, though he can't accept everything that Lenin is putting forward, and that emerges one year later. They have a huge row about religion and about Gorky's sense that you could found a new religion on the basis of Marxism, which is not an idea only that he has. Um, but Lenin says, under no circumstances can we have anything like that. So after... 1906 and enemies, we're in a totally different ballgame. Goes into exile, starts writing about Russia from a distance, and picks up, uh, he has a huge antipathy towards Dostoevsky, and the plays after that are really anti-Dostoevskian tracts, right. <laughs> as much as anything. Yeah. Um, I mean, let, turning to Children of the Sun itself, yeah. now of course uh, I'm aware there'll be people who haven't seen the play yet who may be seeing it tonight, so we, we'll, we'll try and tread carefully and not... But you talked about the intelligentsia, and obviously one of the things that is uh, very striking when you see the play is that a great deal of what happens on stage, and of course not very much happens on stage in some, in some sense, what, we, what we're watching are people debating things like the value of science and the value of art and, and how, how far they're complementary or uh, uh, rivals. Um, as explanatory models of the world. Mm -hmm. um, how far, and I, this was one of the things I was thinking when you said ambivalence, I was thinking as I was watching it earlier in the week, how far are we supposed to really engage in that debate, or how far do you think we're supposed to be kind of critical of the whole framework in which they're thinking? I think the criticism is focused equally mm. on the, there are some really nasty characters in this play. Uh, <laughs> they're moneymakers, they're, cap they're capitalists, they're traders, the landlord of the house, mm. for example, and his son, and uh, to some degree uh, the uh, sister of the man who wants to marry Lisa, who's uh, the scientist's 
sister himself. Mm -hmm. So Mil uh, the person I'm thinking of is Melania. She is, uh, interestingly, orphanhood comes in here. It's made very clear in the play <coughs> that uh, Melania and Baris, who their brother and sister, have been brought up entirely separately. And this is, they were farmed out to different branches of the family when their parents died, exactly what happened to Gorky. And Gorky, one of the things that Gorky picks up very much from 19th century thinking, from Marxism, from the radical ideas among the intelligentsia, is the importance of the conditioning of environment uh, on the development <coughs> of the human personality. So, um, Baris was lucky, he was in, he was educated, he was brought up in a household which encouraged him to become a profession. He becomes a vet. Melania was in a trading household. They were merchants. I think she says her father was a butcher who sold a great deal of uh, meat so that she was in, you know, uh, getting a lot of money. She was married off, or she married herself off very young um, to a, an old man. He died. She went into depression, tried to commit suicide. Um, and then inherited all his millions. And what does she do? She tries to buy Rotasso. I don't, that's the scientist at the center of the play. Tries to buy him, she says, I'll build you a laboratory if you will love me. And there's, there's the economic transaction that's going on there is really rather off-putting. As far as the members of the intelligentsia go in the family, that's Protasso, his wife, Juliana, his sister, Lisa, and their friend, Vargin. Um, they are uh, extremely interesting in the sense that they're part of the movement among the inte intellectuals of that particular period, which was rather airy-fairy, rather mystical. Symbolism had come into Russia at the late 1890s and was really very much part of the intellectual debate, the aesthetic debate that was going on, not specifically political. In fact, Symbolism was really apolitical um, at this particular point. And um, the metaphor for the sun, children of the sun, comes from, it seems to have been influenced by a number of ideas. One of the key poets of the symbolist movement had used the metaphor for the sun throughout his work. That was Constantine Balmont. And he wrote a play, another play, a poem. I've got plays on the brain. He wrote a play called a poem, let's get this right, called Let's be like the sun. Only he saw the sun as something entirely mystical. And I think Gorky's got his tongue in his cheek somewhat with this wonderful metaphor that uh, the scientist brings forward. We're going to aim for the sun. We're going on this wonderful ship to the future. And we're, you know, actually, it reminds me uh, rather uh, disconcertingly of some of the images of socialist realism where you have the, the peasant woman and the worker standing like this. And this picture is described that the intellectuals at the forefront in the prow of this ship sailing off to the future. So I think he's being satirical. I think, though, there's part of him which would just love to be part of something that was aiming for the future, ameliorating, stuff, uh, ameliorating society for Russia, bringing in some of the... Um, utopian ideas. So that's where I think mm. the ambivalence is, is very clear. Because the, the, there's a particular speech where Protasa talks about, you know, the, the sun as the source of life, and, and it's, a, it's quite a, it's a long speech. Uh, and even though Protasa is, in some sense, a rather ridiculous figure, 
it's quite hard not to get a bit whipped up at I that moment. It's Bourke is very good at rhetoric. Right. <laughs> In fact, some, sometimes it destroys his plays. But uh, <laughs> uh, if you go, uh, um, the sun image, if you go back to that one I described that's set in a doss house, the really famous play, which is The Lower Decks. It's um, original, I think I've written this somewhere, but the, the, its original title was Biasantre, Without the Sun, In the Depths, In the Darkness. Um, and there you have rhetoric. You have a huge and very famous speech from a drunken criminal that the most important thing about anything is the humanity of the human, well, let's say the human kindness of the human race. And that's what we must believe in. That's truth. Everybody belongs to the human race. We mustn't have any divisions. And that kind of rhetoric mm. is, is there all through the plays, I think. You, you don't lose it. But it's interesting that it's Yelena yeah. in this play who starts the metaphor off. And right. Protasov picks it up and runs with it. And I think the women play a very special role. Which yes. Perfect. <laughs> May I prompt you perfect. to Segue into my next question, which is actually about the women in the play. Because, yes. uh, because again, uh, and this is the first time I've ever seen this play. Um, so you learn, of course, very different Absolutely. things by seeing it on stage. Um, and I was uh, sort of struck by the way that some of the characters, um, I would say he's, he's perhaps knowingly, perhaps unknowingly, uh, adopting certain kind of stage stock characters. Um, and then some of them are much more complicated. And the women in the play, I think, are, are quite ambivalent, again, in, again. in, in relation to, to that dualism. How, where do you think uh, he's placing the women in his, his ideas and construction of the play? Um, Dorky sees politi politics as an adversarial game. And you've got, his, it's stark. It, you're either right or you're left in modern terminology. The women are the figures that he sees who can make the transition, interestingly enough from the bourgeoisie, as it was called then, I don't like using that word now, but from the bourgeoisie, the wealthy uh, middle class in Russia that had developed, who can make the transition into the radical movement. Maybe it's because they had less to lose at the time. The women in this play don't work, for example. Mm. Yelena and Lisa don't work. Melania doesn't work. We do have working women in this play, and they represent um, another little group. We have servants, which... Uh, is, and the way Gorky treats the servants is one of the huge distinguishing factors between his work and Chiefa's. But that's, that's another story which, which we might come to. Um, so I think he sees, I mean, the, the, the character of Lisa is, is fascinating. Um, she, why he hedged her in with this amount of hysteria and the oh, I don't know, what, the perhaps destabilizing aspect, or destabilized aspect of her personality. I'm, I'm not sure, because I think we find, some of us find that is something which makes her difficult to, to approach. Um, she's called Cassandra in the play at one point, mm. and she does seem to have this ability to foresee. She's a, a prophesier. And, um, but she... Um, brings a note of hysteria in all the way through. And I think that's probably there, not so much from the political point of view, but because it's a red herring. I'm not going to say any more, um, because that might spoil the play for you. But I think she is one of the few people in the play who really sees how far removed 
the middle-class intelligentsia is from what Gorky would call the people. Um, who the people are is a huge range of um, different groups and constituents. Um, where do I start for that particular one? But um, when Gorky began writing, he had spent a long time wandering over Russia. He'd worked in every capacity you can think of. I've just reread for my own entertainment um, a story, one of his very first stories, and he was grape picking somewhere in the south, and he tells a whole lovely folk tale that was told to him by an old woman. So the people, from Gorky's point of view, are wanderers, tramps, uh, the derelict, uh, migrant workers, but they're also factory workers, proletarians, urban environments, and so on. So it's a huge um, canvas as far as Gorky is concerned. So when Lisa um, sees uh, and prophesies that trouble is coming, it's a tension-raising device, but it also shows that it's the woman in her, the woman she is, who is aware. None of the men are, and none of the men are at all. Yelena is similarly um, conscious and aware to the extent that she um, is, has drawn away from her husband. She's quite critical of Protastov and is in fact engaged in a love affair with the artist, Vagin. Um, so she's criti critical. She tries to talk to the scientists and say, what are you doing? I mean, what are you, what are you spending, dedicating your life to? Looking through a microscope all your life? Or should we be doing something about the suffering that's in the town um, where we live? Um, the other women, Antonovna, who's the nanny, mm -hmm. she sends a lovely little poke at somebody else with a very famous name there, Anton Chekhov Antonovna. <laughs> um, she's, in, she's, she's in the line of the Chekhovian nanny, mm -hmm. but she's very different. She's much more central to the household, um, she mothers them far too much. She's a bit like Pierce in, in the Cherry Orchard. And I think there's a conversation going on there between, although Chekhov's dead by now, of course, but there's a conversation going on between the two plays. There's another serv the two more junior servants, Fima and Ryusha, who are really quite concerned about their working conditions, about their lack of freedom, about the way they're ordered about by these intellectuals. So they are women being coming conscious of their... Uh, position in society and what they can do about it. What FEMA does, interesting enough, is goes off and emulates Melania and marries herself off to an old rich man who's going to die soon. So she's going to be very, she's going to be very wealthy. Lucia is a little bit more gauche and primitive and rural and has just joined the household um, towards the end of the play. Um, the uh, Melania, mm, she's not going to give up her wealth. She is from a very different social group. Um, she's, she would dress differently. She had a different style about her. Um, her language is different. And frankly, she's really very fit. Um, she's not got any education, unfortunately. Now, all this is going on. I mean, this is the time of a huge emancipation, not only um, in Europe, but it was also starting to happen in Russia. And since the 1880s, women had been part of the radical movement in Russia. Uh, courses, university courses had opened for them. In um, the play that immediately precedes this, which I mentioned as your summer folk, you have a, a woman doctor 
for example. And these were very new roles on the, uh, in Russian society. And Gorky was really the first uh, dramatist to bring them onto the stage. So he's very, very well aware that things are changing as far as women are concerned. And more than that, he sees them as a vehicle for um, change. That's not to say that Chekhov wasn't aware of this too. If you think, of, but he treated it in a very different way. If you think of Three Sisters, that is a wonderful demonstration of the entrapment of women, mm. of how they can't break out easily from this um, heavy, uh, layered, I'm hesitating to use the word patriarchal because people don't like that word, um, society in which, which they find themselves. But Gorky went further. He could see that women, certain women, would be a vehicle for political change as well. You mentioned uh, earlier on, I think, that um, one of the things that's very distinctive about Gorky, one of the things he's very interested in, is the way in which the environment that, that people are in kind of determines the way in which they're going to behave, the kind of personalities and actions uh, that they, they display. Um, of course, that is very, very characteristic of that period of European theatre because yeah. it's, it's almost the central idea of, of naturalism. And it, it, it occurs in Ibsen, it occurs in Zola, uh, in Hauptmann and so on. How far was uh, Gorky able to access that 20-year movement of theatre? <laughs> if you look um, at the repertoires of mm. the theatres where his plays were um, performed, the Moscow Art Theatre and uh, I, I really ought to put a bigger context in here, but I don't think we're going to have time. Um, he, the, the, plays, the plays that are being performed are Ibsen, Hauptmann, um, and of course a huge repertoire from the history of uh, European drama. Um, the repertoire, I did an analysis, and I can't think why, but it intrigued me, of the repertoires of several theatres, and more than 60% was translated theatre. So that's from about 1870 uh, to 1910. So you can see that they were very well aware right. of what was going on um, in Europe, and certainly about naturalism. Um, Gorky's sort of ultra-naturalist play is really the lower depths, where virtually nothing happens, you said. Um, very little happens in terms of the conventional plot yeah. in this play, but nevertheless it has an impetus and a momentum of its own which mm. drives it forward. But in the lower depths, we're really dedicated to um, living through the lives of these people in a, a time simultaneous manner so that the whole action, um, it, it's slow. It's, it, they, you know, they go to bed when it gets dark because they have no light in the doss house which is in a cellar under a house in the middle of a city. Um, and they wake up when the light comes through one of the really grimy windows. No, they, they sit around, they just talk in the evenings. During the day, they're out on the streets begging. So that exploration of a naturalist environment, he did to an extraordinary degree in um, the lower depths. Here, the um, typical, as I've just said, the typical plot line is, well, it's there because, I don't want to give too much away, but uh, there's a problem with this scientist in his house in this small provincial town. And the problem is that he's uh, doing his experiments and chemicals are going into, are being you know, put into the drainage system out of the house. And at the same time, there's a cholera epi epidemic. 
and people being what they are, this is not a political demonstration, it's a demonstration out of fear that the doctor is spreading cholera. Um, so that really is the tension building um, line which runs through the play, along with Lisa's prophesying about what's going to happen. And we have a few questions about whether Yelena is going to leave the classroom. Um, there is an argument to say that Yelena is a little bit like uh, Nora from The Doll's House yes. in Ibsen, and that he's writing in, I think, response to that. Though I think they're reconciled at the end of this particular play. Yes. But in the previous play, in um, Summer Folk, the wife does leave the husband, mm. but not, um, not just for the reasons of her own emancipation, but because that wife in Summer Folk is going out to dedicate herself to political work. So that's the difference in Gorky. I, I mean, you mentioned that one of the um, developments, the one of the things that structures the, the development of the play um, <coughs> is the growing antagonism of the, of the people who mostly we don't see, the, mm. the people outside the house. And I think it's one of the, the great achievements of the play, that sense in which it gives you that very, very vivid sense of context. And it, am I right in thinking that when, uh, when the play was premiered at the Moscow Art Theatre, um, the presence of the people outside the house was so real that members of the audience began to panic yeah. that there was an actual invasion of the theatre taking place. And the actor playing Protasov had to stand in front of the curtain between absolutely. the acts and reassure them. Is yes, that, absolutely that's true. a true story? Yes. I think you need to understand the context, though. Um, it was put on in the, I think it's the autumn of uh, 1905. And 1905 had started with that dreadful demonstration that Gorky was involved in where people were killed and so on. And there was a huge amount of street demonstration going on throughout the year. And um, both on the, both on the, what we would call now the left and the right. And there were gangs of vigilantes, really, I think is a word to describe them, who were, had set themselves up to go around to prevent trouble. <laughs> And people were very frightened in, I think this was uh, premiered in Moscow. Uh, they were very frightened of these um, vigilante groups. And at the, towards the end of the play, the people come to Protasov's house. They chase a doctor to the house who they think um, has not been treating them for cholera properly. And they want, they're gonna blame Protasov for what's happening. And they, they walk into his garden. And you're absolutely right, Dan. Um, the people sitting in the Moscow Art Theatre, a very middle-class, safe environment. It was so, I mean, and one of the things that the Moscow Art Theatre did extraordinarily well was authenticity. And uh, they were, it, it created panic in the stalls. Can you imagine it? If you thought um, a demonstration was coming over the stage and say, where would you go? You'd shoot, wouldn't you? And it, they took a lot of time to calm the audience down. It was quite sad, really, because it's only about... 20 minutes from the end, or less than that, right, 10 yeah. minutes maybe from the end of the play. But they did calm the audience down, and I think they were able to complete the play. Um, it would, but it didn't, the play wasn't called off. It went on into the repertoire for at least another 20-odd performances that autumn. But of course, the police said, well, you know, what can, else can you expect with Gorky? He cause, causes a riot. In your story. I hope you're not going to riot tonight, though. Okay. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm afraid we are out of time, but can I ask you to join me in thanking Professor Cynthia Much? <laughs>